0: It's a real privilege to um, do the part of the meeting where we look at the Bible together. And um, my name's Andy, and those of you that know me know that I like to hear stories from what God's doing around the world in different places and then share them with you. And I've got a little story to share today before we get into the Bible. And this is actually a story from England. <laughs> uh, and it, uh, yeah, I mean, we've heard some amazing kind of testimonies this morning of what God's doing, and this is a similar um, thing but um, this is from a friend of mine who leads a church in Liverpool um, and they were running an alpha course and there's a lady who signed up for the alpha course from Albania and she, um, she's not a Christian she's had a really hard story her journey out of Albania and to the UK uh, meant that she'd lost contact with all of her family so she doesn't know where her family are in the world and she's ended up in the UK she's she's feeling lost she sees an advert for Alpha she signs up for the Alpha course the day before the Alpha course her sister who lives in the US who has recently become a Christian has a dream and in this dream the sister who lives in the US sees a telephone number and um, says to her pastor I had a dream, I saw a telephone number, I wrote it down. What do you think I should do? (laughs) And um, the pastor said, why don't we phone it right now? (laughs) So she phones this number that she saw in her dream, and it comes through to her sister who's in Liverpool, who she hasn't spoken to for years. And she's able to say to her sister, God gave me a dream. I've met Jesus. He wanted me to reach out to you. It's extraordinary. And so this lady says, well, I've just signed up for an Alpha course. So she turns up at Alpha having been reached out to by her family. And you just think these are wonderful things that God is doing. And if you have a dream with a phone number in it, ring the number. (laughs) It's not a lottery number. Uh, And um, today we're going to continue in our series in the book of Daniel. We've got a few Sundays left. And today we're in Daniel chapter 9. Uh, and Daniel chapter nine is basically a long prayer. It's Daniel praying a long prayer. And all throughout this story, one of the things that we've seen about Daniel is that he is a man of prayer. He keeps praying. You know, the reason he got thrown in the lion's den was because they made prayer illegal. And he said, I'm going to keep praying. And so he got thrown. So all the way through the story, he's been someone who's committed to being a person of prayer and um, this prayer in chapter 9 is one of his prayers that got written down and published and circulated so that other exiles could learn this is how you pray in exile. So let's read the first three verses from Daniel chapter 9. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus by descent Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. So, Daniel, remember, he's a disempowered outsider. He's been forcibly removed from his home, his country, relocated to another place where he has no connections, no influence, no resources, no opportunities. Um, He's a stateless person, and he's part of a despised minority, and all he can do is pray. And maybe you feel like you've got no access to power, no access to influence. No resources. Maybe you think, there's not a lot that I can do. Well, I'll tell you what you can do. You can pray. There's no glass ceiling in prayer. There's no limitation to your ability to get hold of God. No matter who you are, what you've been through, where you're from, the pain and the trauma that you've experienced in your life, you can pray. And with Daniel... Actually, the most important thing that we've seen about him consistently is his spirituality, is his prayerfulness. And we just need to notice that and hold it because, for example, our culture talks a lot about leadership. And I think Christians talk about leadership more than the Bible does and Christians talk about prayer less than the Bible does. And the reason I want to say that is because I think if you've got aspiration... In God, if you're here, maybe as a younger person, thinking, I want to do something, for, I want to make a difference, I want to have an impact, how can I do something for God? I want to say, it's not really about aspiring to leadership, it's about aspiring to being a person of prayer. Because when you do stuff, what you're doing is limited by the reach of your arm. But when you pray, what you're doing is limited by the reach of God's arm which is unlimited. And so you can do stuff and impact a small circle, or you can pray and impact a world. Do you understand? And I would encourage you to have an aspiration to say, if I could be anything, let me be a person of prayer. Let me be someone I may not have influence with people, but I could have influence with God. When I was a brand-new Christian, uh, I went and lived in India for a while, um, long story, uh, but while I was there, one of the things that I learned, I learned a lot living in India, it's an incredible nation, incredibly hospitable people, but one of the things I learned was about prayer, because you realize, it's like in the, the movie Eat, Pray, Love, you know, you get, India's good on food uh, and good on spirituality, and, uh, what, but one of the things you realize is that people who have less pray more. And I think Daniel had less, and he prayed more. And I think if we're talking about living as exiles in a post-Christian culture, some of your influence and resource may be limited going forward, but we can pray. Amen? And so, if you're going to aspire to anything, aspire to prayer. Got any rivers you think are uncrossable? Got any mountains you can't tunnel through? God specializes in things thought impossible and his power can do what no other can do. Amen. Oh, that I might be a person of prayer. Now, we're going to look at this prayer. And I um, just want to pull out a few things uh, from this prayer. Because it's actually quite theologically helpful. And there are some things that Daniel prays here, which are important things for us to wrestle with in our day, in our culture, in our time. And so, firstly, what is he praying about? Well, he said, I I opened the books, I looked in the book of Jeremiah, and I saw in Jeremiah chapter 25 that God had said it was going to be 70 years that our exile would last. So Daniel um, had left Jerusalem, his family was killed, and he was forcibly taken when he was in his early teens, probably about 15 years old. And now, actually, it is about 70 years later, he's an old, old man now. But I don't think that the 70 years literally is what triggers Daniel's prayer here because it's so often in the Bible, as I'm always telling you, the numbers are generally symbolic rather than kind of mathematically accurate. And 70, it's, it's God's number. It means God's perfect time. Seven is the, the time of creation, the fullness of a week. So 70, So God is saying, you're going to go in exile until my perfect time is complete and then I will bring you home." But he also says, the Babylonians are going to take you into exile, and then I'm going to destroy the Babylonians and bring you home. What we just read in the verse was that Daniel's praying this in the first year of Darius the Mede, the Persian. So in other words, the Persians have come, They've smashed the Babylonians, and they've taken over. So Daniel says, okay, God, you said when the Babylonians' empire had ended, it was time for us to come home. So he's praying, God, can you bring my people, the Jews, home from Babylon, home from exile, back to Jerusalem, because I believe your perfect time is completed. That's what he's praying. When he starts to pray, the first thing that he does is he confesses sin. So just going to read a few verses. He starts with confession, okay? Verse 4, I prayed to the Lord my God, and I made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have, check out this list of synonyms, words that all sound the same. We have sinned, and done wrong, and acted wickedly, and rebelled, Turning aside from your commandments and rules, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. So he makes a long list of different ways of saying, God, you're amazing, and we're messed up, which is one of the most important things we need to know about God and about us, right? He's amazing, and we're not. And so he starts, actually, by confessing sin, but taking responsibility. But here, one of the really important words that he uses is we. We have sinned. See, for me, I look at it, I could get quite cross about this prayer. I don't know about you. I think, Daniel, you were 15 or younger. And you're saying the reason that Jerusalem got trashed and you got taken away is because of sin. But you didn't do anything wrong. And maybe your parents did and your grandparents, but not you Daniel, why are you blaming yourself as the victim? Culturally, for us, that's really bad, isn't it? It's not his fault. And yet here, somehow, he's taking responsibility, and he's saying, no, but God, we have done wrong, and so you have punished us. And I want to drill into this a little bit, and it might feel a little clunky and a little complex, but it's really important that we get this, because these are massive questions that our culture is wrestling with, my teenagers are wrestling with, massive part of our cultural narrative, okay? Questions like, when bad stuff happens, whose fault is it? And are people fundamentally good? So you search for the hero inside yourself, or are people fundamentally bad? Okay, we need to wrestle with questions like this, and I think... The really important word in this passage is Daniel's word, we. Because I think our hyper-individualism in the UK makes us struggle with concepts like sin and consequence. Because otherwise, what we say is, the reason you've got cancer is that you must have sinned. Because we just zoom in on the individual. And the Bible is never going to say that to someone. Or the reason that you got abused is because you did something wrong. Maybe your skirt was too short or you acted inappropriately. The Bible is never going to blame a victim. The Bible is never going to zoom in on an individual like that. But we are going to see that the reason that cancer is in the world and the reason that abuse is in the world is because we have sinned. So brokenness is in the world as a consequence of our sin, and that includes me and includes you. So we do have a sense of responsibility, but we have to zoom out to a bigger, more global, more historical picture, rather than zoom into the individual incident where you could have been innocent in that individual incident, and you probably were. But that doesn't make you without sin in a universal sense. Does that make sense? Uh, I just, I really want us to wrestle with this. It's really important. Otherwise, the way that we see the world, the way that we answer these questions, gets a bit broken because we zoom in on individuals. But the Bible doesn't do that, it zooms out on complex, big problems that demand a complex, big solution, which is why Jesus has to come and die for the sins of the world and break the curse in the world. So, this will do two things in the room right now, okay? Some of you, you have a really big sense of personal guilt. You've got an over sense of guilt. You think, my kids are messed up because I'm a rubbish parent. It's my fault, okay? And some of you are going, yeah, well, it's true. <laughs> or, all this bad stuff has happened in my life because of the bad choices I've made. Now, what the, the thing that Paul said, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Just turn around to some people near you and go, all have sinned. All have sinned. Even you. Even me. What the all have sinned does for that person who feels too much guilt is it dilutes it a little bit. It lifts the guilt off you a little bit. Yeah, you're responsible, but you're not responsible for everything. Because all have sinned. Your kids have also made their own choices, yeah? Other people in the room, at the other end of the scale, will be going, well, I never do anything wrong. You know who you are. And actually, I've fallen out with this person, but it was all their fault and not mine. Some of you are nodding, yeah, but it's true. <laughs> And there can be a a kind of almost a bullishness and a pride to that, no guilt. Again, what the Bible says is all have sinned, including you and that person. Do you understand? I think that one of the best ways that we could probably think about sin in the Bible is to think of it as a big, complex global problem, like the ecological crisis, okay? So, climate change, whose fault is that? Is there floods in Bangladesh because I drove here this morning in my petrol car? Well, no, but actually my carbon footprint has contributed to climate change and floods in Bangladesh. Do you understand? So the problem is a massive one. It's not all on me, but it is on us. And that's the power of the we in Daniel's prayer here. God, we have sinned. Even though he was a 15-year-old kid, he's saying, God, the reason that there's brokenness and mess in the world is because we have sinned, and I include myself in that. So there is personal responsibility, but it's not all on you, but it is on you. But it's not all on you, but it is on you. But it's not only on you, but it is on you. Do you get it? Re- Do you get it? Uh-huh. If you don't, I'm really sorry I've not been able to explain that better, but it really matters. In the verse that we read, uh, Daniel uses lots of different words for wrongdoing and mistakes and mess, and um, he leaves us no wriggle room, because you may go, well, I've, I'm okay on that one, tick and tick, but I did do that one, okay? So I'm just going to go through them, and you can just have a little think. First he says, God, we've sinned. Sin here, it means lack. So shortcomings. The standard was here, and I'm only here. So that's most of us, because most of us lack something. But maybe you think, no, I've got everything. Okay, fine. Put your hand up if you've got everything, and no shortcomings. No, let's not go there. (laughs) Then he goes, and we've done wrong. So that... Doing wrong, what does that mean? Think of your life choices as like a multiple choice. You can choose A or B. You can choose A or B. He's saying some of us have sometimes chosen B instead of A. Sometimes we've made wrong choices. I don't know. Have you ever made any wrong choices? Or has it always just been smashed every time? A, 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 A. And then he says, and we've acted wickedly. Now, this is a little bit stronger. This isn't just not doing what was right. This is actively choosing to hurt people sometimes. Act- acting maliciously towards people. Have you ever done that? And then he says, and we've rebelled. So rebellion is more of an attitude, isn't it? Against authority. Kind of said, yeah, God, you're in charge. You designed it. You wrote the instructions, but I'm ignoring it. And I'm like me when I try and build Ikea stuff. I rebel. I'm like, I don't need the instructions. And that's supposed to be a bed. That's not a bed. (laughs) Yeah, that's rebellion. And then he says, and we've turned aside. So the satnav told you to go straight on the motorway, but you turned off the motorway because you thought you knew better, and you got lost. And that's why some of us feel lost, is because we've turned aside. And then he says, and we've not listened. So this is a bit more the, the Naughty Boy song, covering my ears like a kid. Yeah, like I'm not listening. I'm ignoring you. Um, Listen is the big covenant word in, in Judaism. Listen, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And he's saying, no, but we haven't listened. And so, let's just be really clear what Christians believe about this, please. We were made in the image of God with something beautiful and perfect and immortal and sacred and special inside us. And that is in every person. Every person has dignity and beauty. But sin, which has been released in the world, has come out from inside of everybody. So everybody has a darkness and a brokenness. And the wickedness that has come out from inside them. And so we all have this preciousness but brokenness. And that's true of all people because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Okay? This sermon is going to go like this, down into a really sad moment. I can see it on your faces. But don't worry, there's hope coming. Hallelujah. It's going to be like a smile. <laughs> Secondly, consequences. Um, he, he, he confesses sin, but then he... he He talks to God about some of the consequences of that sin. So verse 8. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we sinned against him. He's confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us, bringing upon us a great calamity. So really quickly, there are three consequences of sin that he mentions in these verses that have come upon the people of Israel. Uh, And they all start with S for me, because that's easier to remember. The first one is shame. He says, God, we've got shame. We're ashamed. It's like the cold shoulder of God. We're out in the cold because of our sin. Secondly, he says separation. He says the oath and the curse have been poured out. What were they? God said through Moses, if you sin, you will lose your land. You will lose Jerusalem. You'll be separated from the presence of God. And so there's a separation. There is a distance. They think God is over there and we're over here. And I feel that. And then thirdly, we've got shame. We've got separation. And then we've got stuff happens stuff happens he says this great calamity has come upon us there's mess in the world there are things like cancer and abuse there's brokenness there's it's like sin opened a little door in the cosmos somewhere and all this screaming nasty darkness just came out into the world stuff happens now so those are the three consequences that he mentions and then he's going to come and he's going to make three requests okay verse 16 O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from Jerusalem, your holy hill. Because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, O God, listen to the prayer of your servant and listen to his pleas for mercy. For your own sake, O Lord, make your face Shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that's called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your mercy. Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, because your city and your people are called by your name. So what he's making here is three requests to God about these three problems. And the first request that he makes is redirection. God, please turn your anger away from Jerusalem. So what he's, it's like there was a flood of nasty stuff that was coming to Jerusalem because of sin. And he says, God, please, will you turn it away? Will you redirect it away from us? Which is a great prayer, but it begs the question, where's it going to go then? All that anger and darkness, where's that going to go if it's turned away? And that points us towards the cosmic solution, Jesus Christ, who's going to take it all on the cross. The second solution that he's praying for is radiance. These are all going to start with R, by the way. The second solution he's praying for is radiance. He says, God, make your face shine upon us. This is how I know that God is a bald person. Because people with bald heads, their faces shine more. (laughs) And he says, God, please make your face shine upon us. And only the the radiance of a bald head would bring... (laughs) that kind of light to people. But what, what that prayer means is, God, tu- we've been out in the cold. Turn your face towards us. Let there be your attention, your gaze, your intimacy, your noticing of us. Put your f- let your face shine towards us. It's a lovely prayer. And then thirdly, he says, God, would you please take responsibility? This people and this city bear your name. If they've got your name on them, You need to take responsibility for them. Their honor is bound up in your honor. Their reputation is bound up in your reputation oh God. And so these three solutions uh, solve the three consequences of sin. Redirection is a solution to the stuff happening thing. Stuff comes, but God says, turn it away from us. But where's it going to go? And that points towards Jesus. Radiance is a solution to separation. We've we've felt so far away from God. He's saying, God, turn your face towards us. Let us know your presence. Let us know that you're with us. Let us know your nearness. And responsibility is a solution to shame. Because he's saying, God, we bear your name. We carry your name. We're not on our own. We're not alone and ashamed and in the darkness anymore. We've got God taking responsibility for us. And so we've just gone through the prayer. I'm sorry, it's, it's, it's a bit clunky, but they're, they're things that we really need to wrestle with, which is what we're trying to do. What I'm trying to do, I don't know what you're doing. Maybe you're wrestling. Um, and then finally, I just want us to zoom out and see what happens after Daniel prays and how this points to not just solving Israel's problem with Jerusalem, but solving everybody's problem. The whole world's problem, this ancient cosmic problem of sin. So, verse 20. While I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, who I'd seen in the vision at first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. And he made me understand, speaking with me and saying, Oh, Daniel, I've now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. That's amazing. You were praying, and a word went out somewhere in heaven. A message was sent, and Gabriel, the flying man, appears. A word went out, and I've come to tell it to you because you are greatly loved or greatly esteemed. This is a man of prayer, and so he's known in the throne room of God, and he's greatly appreciated. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. 77s are decreed about you and your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. So while Daniel's praying, an angel called Gabriel flies in, and lands. Well, maybe he didn't land, maybe he spoke from the sky, I don't know, I don't really understand angels, but Gabriel, this named angel, only appears in two places in the whole of history. You only get him twice in the Bible, you get him here in Daniel, And then where else does he appear? The angel Gabriel. Christmas is coming. Christmas is coming, yeah? Gabriel appears at the beginning of Luke to announce the birth of Jesus Christ. He appears here to Daniel at the time of the evening sacrifice. And he will appeal at the time of the evening sacrifice also to Daniel's great descendant Zechariah. Ministering in the temple to say... You're going to have a son called John the Baptist. And then he'll appear to Mary and say, even though you're not married, you're going to have a baby. I I love this. It's the only time that Gabriel appears. He appears here to promise one day in the future there's going to be a solution to this massive problem of sin in the world. And then Gabriel then disappears into heaven for a few hundred years. And then he comes back at the beginning of Luke to say the time has come. And the solution that I spoke about to Daniel is now being born in the womb of this virgin in this town, Nazareth. That's, that, that's Gabriel's whole thing in the whole of history. Make the promise and then he's the guy that... I love actually that God lets him who made the promise be the one that comes to deliver the promise. I think that's very gracious of God. And Gabriel, I don't know what he's doing the rest of the time. He's just waiting in heaven, watching the heaven. When's it time, God? When's it time, God? Amazing. <laughs> And basically, what he says to Daniel is this, you're praying about your people and your story in Jerusalem. That's important, but I've come to give you an answer to a much bigger story. I've come to tell you about a much bigger thing that God is doing in the world that's bigger than just the Jews in Jerusalem, that's even going to include people in a cold place called Reading on a Sunday in 2021 somewhere. Amen? And so the Jewish story, which is Jerusalem and then sin and then exile 70 years and then being brought home, is partial and temporary and small and paradigmatic. It's a a template for the bigger story of the world, which is our story, where we were in Eden in the presence of God and we had everything, but then sin came and mess came and we ate the fruit. Why did we eat the fruit? And because we ate the fruit, we opened a door into darkness and pain and mess and chaos and it came into the whole world. And that's our story, and we all take responsibility for it, and it's inside all of us. And there's a promise that one day someone is going to come to put an end to transgression and to finish iniquity and to seal up the darkness forever. And that's what he promises here. And the reason that he says 77s, in other words, 70 times 7 years, 490 years, again, it's not a literal 490 years, He's saying the 70 is the solution to the small story, Israel's story. But actually, there's a massive, bigger thing happening here. Times seven just means massive and bigger, okay, in the Bible. There's a bigger thing happening here where God is solving a cosmic problem. And he's solving brokenness in the far-flung corners of the earth, even in a cold island in a northern sea somewhere called England that Daniel had never heard of, and removing sin forever. So the return to Jerusalem will happen, but it's only partial. The inclination inside people to sin remains unresolved. The wrath of God is turned away from Jerusalem, but where will it go? They're all awaiting Jesus. And Daniel's exile and longing for return is like our exile from Eden, from the presence of God, and our longing to go home there one day. And in verse 24, this beautiful verse, he says, "...when this time is fulfilled..." God is going to remove sin forever. He's going to atone for iniquity. And the word seal happens in this verse a couple of times. We saw this word seal uh, in chapter 6 when Scott preached on it. When Daniel was thrown into the lions, then the stone was put there and it was sealed. And we also see this word seal in the tomb of Jesus Christ, the burial of Jesus. The stone is rolled over in a seal. It's like finality, finished, stamped, you're in the grave. And what he's saying here is one day... Sin, this mess, this pain, this darkness that we've been talking about that affects all of us so deeply is going to be put in a grave and there's going to be a stone and a seal and it's going to be done away with forever. And concrete's going to be poured on it like you do with radioactive waste. It's going to be buried. Why? Because it's going to be absorbed in the person of Jesus Christ, the only person who's without sin. And he's going to absorb it all and take the darkness and he's going to be put into that grave. And it's going to be buried and sealed and done away with forever. The inclination to sin that's inside us is going to be put onto Jesus and buried. So that we don't even have that anymore. Hallelujah. And so Joyce Baldwin, she says this about this verse. It is announcing that God has found a way of forgiving sin without being untrue. his own righteousness. This assurance was what the prayer had been feeling for. It was the great longing expressed by Daniel. And so just remember, and we're going to close here and then we're just going to take a moment to celebrate Jesus, but the three things that Daniel was praying for, radiance, and redirection, and responsibility, we're going to see them all fulfilled in the big problem of the world in our Lord Jesus Christ. Radiance, make your face shine upon us. Be, show us that you care, God. Show us that you're not far away. Show us that you're near us and with us. We see that in the birth of Jesus Christ. In the incarnation, suddenly God has a face. I'm not claiming that Jesus was bald, but he had a shiny face. But God suddenly has a face. And he can touch people and he can look at people and he can be amongst people. And he's not just an idea, but he's here with us in our mess. So separation is resolved, not because we got to God, but because he got to us. Hallelujah. And then redirection, turn away your anger and wrath from us, begs the question, where will it go? Well, it goes into the death of Jesus. You could think of the tomb as like a moat. Or a hole dug in the ground. And all the nasty stuff that's coming towards us gets redirected and then buried in this hole in the death of Jesus. So that we're delivered, saved, rescued, freed. And then responsibility. We see this fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus. Because when Jesus smashes out of the grave to start a new humanity, a new human project, a new mankind... What, what was messed up by Adam, we get a brand new beginning and he calls us sons and daughters and includes us in that, in our baptism, in our union with Christ. What does that mean for us? It means we, we get to be called children of God. So he's got his name on us. This people are called by your name, oh God. He's got his name written on you. So when you're in exile, when you go to work, when you're wrestling with stuff, you can say, God, save me, not just for my sake, but for the sake of your name, because your name is written on me. You've got a responsibility here, God. Do something, please, in my life. Take responsibility for me because I'm your child and you're my father. Hallelujah. So, friends, let's stand together. I just want to pray and then we're going to sing. I know it's a bit longer than normal. I know it's a bit clunkier. I don't care. I just, I really wanted to wrestle with some of these things today. And you are thinking people and you can wrestle with these things. And there'll be notes online. You can go away, listen to it again, think about these things. I know all of that. Right now, we just want a moment in the Holy Spirit. Amen. Maybe just lift your hands.